You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.
All right, welcome back to the Heavy Metal Mayhem Radio Show. It seems like we ended last week's show with Venom, and we started off this week's show with Venom. In League with Satan, one of my favorite bands of all time. Venom, love those guys. Hey, we got a great show tonight. Joe Lennon from Frigid Bitch will be our first guest up in about uh, 20 minutes or so. We'll give Joe a call. And then after that, Jason Ashcraft from Diaparel and Helium Prime. And you know what? Yesterday, I contacted the New York State Police Department. I put out an Amber Alert uh, for Mr. Thomas Falanga. And I tell you, you know what? That Amber Alert system really works because the state of New York had found him. Tommy, what's going on? Yeah, I was... uh... I was being, I was kidnapped, and I was on my way to Mexico. <laughs> was it that lady from upstate with the two girls? Did she take you too? Yes, that's what it was. Right. Um, that's what happened. Had, you know, these crazy things happen. You know, <laughs> they should do. Well, you know, I, I, I told everybody every week that we were so overwhelmed with guests. Since the yeah, middle of January, three or four weeks, there was just no way for you and I to chit-chat and get everybody on and off in time. So we kind of took a little break there. But uh, we had to cancel a lot of the guests that we were going to have on this Sunday. Uh, we just yeah. left Joe and uh, Jason because they were booked for a long time. So it freed up a little airtime uh, for us to bullshit and chit-chat and catch up on all the heavy metal things going on in the world. Yeah, sounds good, man. Sounds good. It sure does. Yeah, I, you know, I, I can't. I caught a couple of shows and uh, not live, you know, the replays and wow, there's so much going on in the world, man. It's amazing. It, it's a lot so, of stuff it's a happening. Hotbed for heavy metal now, you know, which is really good. It, yeah, absolutely. And I have to tell you, this week, uh, Dave Evans, who I hate to even say was like the former singer for ACDC, because like he was in the band for like less than a millisecond of their career. I mean, it was a yeah. few months back in like I don't know, '73 or '74, when they were still like a little. Australian bar band just getting started. He takes the right. cake for the Sebastian Bach, you know, most pathetic attempt of getting back into a band and being Lee Singer Award this week. He did an interview, I guess, with some, I don't even know who, I don't know if it was a radio show, podcast, a, a magazine, saying that, you know, he's ready to go if ACDC calls him back in. And this is a man, I mean, I don't want to say something bad about the guy because I don't know him, but I mean, he's made a career out of playing it off that he was the foremost singer of ACDC. And it wasn't even the ACDC that anybody really knew or remembered. You know, the, the one that he was in for those few months, that little single, thing. but he goes out playing all ACDC songs from the Bon Scott <laughs> era, the Brian Johnson, and nothing that he had to do with him. You know, that's the funniest part about it. And I guess, yeah. like, you know, you don't blab about that. I mean, you put one thing on there. It can even be the nicest thing in the world. Like, you know, Jesus came oh, yeah. back there today. People are going to just rip it apart. And they yeah, just yeah. taught this guy an asshole that he, he came out, I guess, on, on, on his Facebook page. And sort of like try to retract, like he didn't say that. They kind of ran with his words, but they were all his words. They were there was nothing to retract there. They were all his words. You're right. You're right. And you know who's following in his footsteps? I don't know why. Why? But all of a sudden now, that guy Reese, who was an except for one hour. Yeah, David Reese from Except. If they want me back, they <laughs> got me. He, <laughs> where has he been? Like it's like. Doesn't he know that they put out three albums already with fucking Mark? I mean, come on. Give me a fucking break. Um, 
He's a, I mean, we, we had David Reese on the show years ago. He was a really nice guy to talk to, but I mean, that eight, I mean, that, that except record, I mean, I can listen to it today and it's not really a bad record, but when it came out, you know, the fact that Udo wasn't in the band anymore and it was kind of more commercial sound than anything except the done before that, it just got torn apart. And he's like the guy that you want to forget about that he was in except just like, you know, other other groups had singers that came in, like Blaze Bailey. Is he going to look to go back to Iron Maiden now? Or that Bruce Dickinson, yeah. you know, uh, had the throat yeah, cancer? Like, and Bruce, Bruce Dick, I'm surprised he didn't come up when Bruce Dickinson had a little problem with his throat, you know? Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, you know, I, I should have bad-mouthed Blaze because at least he did play in Iron Maiden and record yeah, albums yeah. with them, you know, when they were right, popular. And, and he didn't really do that. But, but exactly. <laughs> it's just... He's like the fans all over the world love me. This guy Dave Evans is going like they they love the music you're singing. You're like a cover band. You're covering ACDC. You didn't even record any of those songs. It was yeah, such yeah, a yeah. pathetic attempt. I mean, it's like it would be nice if the, and then like you know people writing down like I guess people are like real historians and ACDC. I'm not the biggest yeah. ACDC fan, you know, so I don't know like a lot of the you know the, like in and outs or little tidbits. It's like they hate him. Malcolm Young hated him with a passion. And, you know, yeah, he yeah, that's yeah. one of the reasons that they had to get him out of the band. Like, you know, they just couldn't tolerate him. So what chance? Yeah. And, you, and he he was a part of it. So he knows that he's not liked by the Young Brothers, even though Malcolm's not a part of the band anymore, you know, like on stage performing live or anything. I mean, why would you even throw that out there when you know how hated you are by pretty much the main guys of the band, you know, the, the, the Young Brothers? <laughs> it makes no sense to me. But, you know, like, like, like Brian Johnson said, yeah, get to Go ahead. No, that's He says that he says that it wasn't, you know, uh, he didn't lose his hand because of the music, because of the race car driving. He didn't protect, he didn't protect yeah. his ears, you know, wearing ear protection when he was doing it. And it's a it's shame, but yeah. I mean, it, it boggles, you know, like, you know, you go on Facebook and it's the same like with the Brian Johnson thing. The same thing happened. Like every time a rock star dies, like, how's, how's my world going? How am I going to get on my world now? You know, uh, the guy from Memphis Lake and Palmer just passed away. Like, the guy was 70 yeah. something. He didn't, I think he killed himself, I heard. I don't even, I don't I know. Was I might, 70, wasn't a fan. 72, but they say it was a suicide. I don't know. Yeah, that's what they're saying. He's but, he, but he's 72 years old. Uh, I don't know yeah. about you, but I'm not going to be doing my job when I'm 72 years old, even if I was a rock star. I mean, I mean, everybody gets old and fucking dies. And, I mean, I feel bad for him. I feel bad for the family that, that's going to miss him. But everybody yeah. fucking gets old and dies. I mean, bitching like, you know, ACDC shouldn't go on anymore. And they were doing the same with Lemmy right before he died when he was getting sick. And performing, yeah. and now they're doing with Brian Johnson. ACDC should, you know, should keep going on because the rest of the guys are young. I'm like, young. Uh, Angus is yeah. the youngest one. He just turned sixty, and like the Brian Johnson can still keep going. <laughs> 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 I mean, you know, for sure. You know. But, but oh, like, I'm like Brian, Brian Johnson, sixty-eight years old. He's been saying for yeah. the last decade he's getting tired. He doesn't want to do it anymore. He's been, you know, come yeah. on, he's sixty yeah. fucking years old. I mean, the, you know, people yeah. think because you're a rock star, it's glamorous, but that's a that's a hectic life. You're, the traveling, the yeah, commuting, sure, the sure. place to place, in and out. It's it's not easy. I mean, they're not doing physical labor. They're not carrying the fucking amps on the back like when they're eighteen years yeah, old, like getting in a van. It, but yeah. it's strenuous, and you know, as much fun as it is for those ninety minutes on stage, everything in between getting to those ninety minutes is a lot of work. And the guy's yeah. sixty is like, well, he's got more random. I'm like, ACDC has been putting out a record every six to seven years, touring every six to seven years. So the next record of tour would make him 75 fucking years old. I mean, come on. I mean, how long do they want these people to go on for? I, I don't get it. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I hate to see that generation end because that was what we grew up with. They were the people that we started out with in music. 
I hate to see, right. but it happens to all of us. I mean, shit. Yeah. My grandparents ate steak, smoked, and drank, died in the 50s. That was the world back then. You know, it shit happens. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. Crazy shit. But, you know, the guy should stop what he's doing. Stop touring. Stop with the music. He's been wanting to do it for a long time. What, what he, hearing he has left is more important at 68 than getting up on stage oh, and entertaining sure. people. You've been doing oh, it for sure. 50 fucking years of your life. Now it's time to worry about you and take care of your health and enjoy what you got left and all that money you made doing it. Enjoy it now. Forget about everything else. It is time to pack well, it in. And I, and I get that they want to make up those lost dates because they probably lose a lot of money if they don't. So, like they said, bring in a guest singer, bring in different big name guest singers to fill in for a couple of shows. So it'd be like yeah. an entertaining thing for people, and, and just end it like that and, and let it go. You know, you know uh, what's his name, uh, Sebastian Bach will help out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's taking the week off from uh, trying to get a Skid Row job back, so maybe he could go for the. Talking about Sebastian Bach, I think it was Metal Sludge, the website Metal Sludge. They were reviewing that uh, Monsters of Rock cruise that just went out. Like, they were featured, like, the guitarist. So they're trying to figure, like, yeah. why he was on that cruise performing. And they said he walked in with such a fucking attitude. Like, he's like, I'm, I'm the reason that they put hair and hair metal back in the 80s. I don't know if that's something to brag about, but he seemed to want to yeah, do that. Really. He was getting people kicked out of the show. I mean, you're on a fucking cruise, you get people kicked out of your show. I mean, he still has got that rock star attitude, but he's been a loser for more than he's been a rock star. And I, I read the Metal Sludge article. Like, they really like read everything about like that. They did a nice little review, but they're a funny website too. So they kind of goofed on a lot of things. But yeah, he, he yeah. got ripped apart in there and well deserved because the guy is an asshole. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. You know, it was funny. I was reading that this morning about uh, Reese, is his name, right? From uh, he did the one except album, Eat the Heat. Yeah, Dave Reese. Dave Reese, right. So Dave Reese, yeah. somebody said that. Somebody said that he, he should do the ACDC. So I, I, you know what, to tell you the truth, I never bought that album because I didn't like like that sound or that look that yeah. they had. You know, so uh, I, I, you know, I went on YouTube and I, I listened to like most of the album. And, and there's a reason why I didn't buy it. You know, they were like, you know, kind of poserish at the time. And I was listening to fucking Slayer and fucking Venom. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, know? absolutely. It was you know? definitely a, a, a commercial yeah. hair metal album. That's what they were trying to yeah, do at that yeah. time, yeah. late 80s. Uh, but, and, you know, know I'm funny that Even Saxon, they had like that look. And some of the songs were kind of wimpy, but some of the album, um, rest, you know, most of the album was good, you know, those songs. You know, they had good well, songs it, on their albums. Yeah, the Innocence is no excuse record kind of was a, like a turning point for that well, band also. Yeah, I think that, that that was probably the last one that I bought until I started buying again, you know? Yeah, like a, yeah. You know, I took a break, let's put it that way. But, uh, well, yeah, I everybody know. wanted to be, everybody wanted to be Poison and fuck a Motley Crue, and that's why... Uh, you know, aside from the first album, first two albums of Molly Crew, there's nothing really redeemable, you know, to me, you know, as, you know, to Tommy, you know. But that don't mean, mean a fucking thing. But the guy Reese, he, he might fit in ACDC. <laughs> but then somebody yeah. mentioned Mark Storacci, uh, Storacci of. Uh, yeah. Of. Uh, yeah, well, uh, Mark was gonna. Mark was about to try to the for the band before they got Brian Johnson in there. I think he exactly, would have got that gig. Exactly. Would have went his way, but that wouldn't be yeah. bad either. Just to get him to fill in, he's a he's a well known rock star. People know everybody knows Crocus in the scene, and that wouldn't be bad either because he would do justice to the Bon Scott and Brian Johnson, you know, era of the band because he's got that voice. Yeah, just like the both of them, and, and that'd would, be a pretty cool. Be like a, and it wouldn't be like a joke because you know he, he you know. 
Like yeah, he's a fan he's himself, and he sounds job, great. And he's a fan himself. Yeah. Exactly. I think that would be a good way to close it out by bringing him in. It would be more like a tribute, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, very good. All right. Well, you know what? Let's get some music on here. We're going to reach out to Joe Leonard in about 10 minutes. We'll give him a call. We'll get the interview going with Frigid Bitch. Uh, I, I got the new Diamond Head record this week, a self-titled album, Diamond Head. I had a real crazy hellish week. I didn't get a chance to go through anything this week. Uh, I didn't even get to like plan anything for interviews tonight, so we're just going to wing both of them, do the best I can to get through everything in the show. I'll just pick out a song off the new Diamond Head record. Let me see what we got. For, you know what? We'll do the song Bones, the first song. Usually the opening track kind of sets the tone for the record. So we'll do that. We'll listen to it together for the first time. We'll do another song. We'll get some frigid bitch on, and we'll reach out to Joe. So here you go. Brand new Diamond Head. The song is called Bones.
Abattoir, Vicious Returns. Boy, I love those guys. You know, Steve Gaines is also an anger resort. They got a brand new record out. It's charting really well on the CMJ. Pick it up if you have a chance. And T, right before that, the Diamond Head. I know you and I were bullshitting a little bit, so we probably didn't really get to hear most of it. Uh, but it didn't sound too bad. I don't know what you guys out there think of the new Diamond Head. Uh, I'm going to go through the rest of the album this week and, and give it a really good listen. All right, but i tell you what. Let's get uh, Joe Leonard on the line. From Frigid Bitch. Let's get this interview going here. Oh, look at this number. I love it when we, you know, interview New York bands from the New York scene, mostly because they all sound yeah. like we do. So that's yeah, a pretty good right. thing. All right. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, right. Absolutely. 
Okay, there we go. Let's dial that number. So far, so good at ring. One ring and diggy. <laughs> you remember that? Huh? I do. Joe, it's Mike from Heavy Metal Mayhem. How are you? Nice to speak to you, Mike. You too, Joe. How's everything going today? I'm doing just fine. Let me just turn this down here. So I was listening to your show. Huh. Okay. I'm oh, you're the only fine. one. I knew some. I knew somebody was listening today. <laughs> uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, I would imagine a lot of people listen to your show. <laughs> well, look, it's great to have you on, especially since I'm such a big Frigid Bitch fan from back in the day. I remember getting those demo tapes and seeing you guys all over the place from Lamar to Valley Stream and back up and down yeah. again. Yeah, wow, it's amazing. It, oh, yeah, yeah. I was right there with you guys, man. It was That was some really wow. good stuff back in the day. And I'm glad that, you know, I, I don't know if you guys are trying to do something again. I would love to see that happen. I don't know if it's possible <laughs> or it's something you're interested no, in. Is it? Yeah, there's, there, well, there, there's, you know, it's funny. There, there, there's some recent doings and happenings going on. It involves uh, a group called Enforcer from Sweden uh, that covered yeah. uh, tyrants, of a gen tyrants of a Generation. I don't know if you played on the show or not. but um, Not not that version of it. Oh, okay. You should. Play both versions. Ours and theirs is fine. Um, even back-to-back -to, -back to compare them. But basically um, what happened was um, there's been kind of a resurrection of, of – interest in the band over the last few years um there was another band called sacrificial blood that covered we rule the night and um the drummer from the band put up a facebook page and there's been a lot of interest growing over the last couple of years and then with enforcer um covering tyrants well things really exploded recently and um uh the um enforcer records distributed by sony here in the states and universal outside of the country so for the first time, uh, Frigid Bitch's music is being distributed through major, um, and we've never had a formal release of any of our music um, over the years. And um, it's uh, quite humbling, to be frank with you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you never left the music business. You know, I mean, you kind of went the other direction behind the scenes for a lot of years. Yeah. Uh, but well, did you yeah, think I mean, that people I mean, forgot about the group? Um, you know, I mean... It's kind of an ongoing conversation that I've had with Henry, my, my dear friend Henry, who's a guitar player in the band, for many, many years. And I think, I don't think anyone ever forgot about the group. I think people kind of wondered where the group was. And, you know, they obviously don't know the whole story, as you were just about, you know, touching on here, and that my, my um, uh, how can I say, my uh, involvement with the business is something that people just don't understand because they're looking at this from, from a standpoint of a group. Uh, they don't know that I was involved in combat records and uh, involved pretty much with the formation and the infrastructure of the modern day heavy metal movement. So they, you know, it's, it's not something that everyone knows. So I, I think that there's a confusion there. And I think when people find out about the group, as they start to dig into the history of the group, they find out my history and then it all makes sense to them. And that's, I think that's a fair way to answer your question. Yeah. You know, people forget too that, you know, Frigid Bitch came out like around 1980. I mean, you're talking New York right. City, the East Coast, 1980, nothing like what you were doing, anything else really even happening around here at the time. I mean, yeah. this is like almost pre Metallica, you know, pre Slayer, right. and pre all those other bands that kind of, you know,
made the new scene yeah you know after everything that came out of england back in the new wave of british heavy metal days this was like brand new here and you're talking about a band from new york city where we were off for guidos cruising the streets more than you know hard rock and heavy metal right sure and, and, and you have to also consider that we started when we were 16 years old um you know with our first release of calls robin hoods uh, we had major record companies looking at us within, within two weeks of the release of the single this was unheard of um you know there was no other anything like it at the time the only other thing i can compare it to is what was going on with twisted sister and but twisted was a, an established club act we were four kids in alma shell's basement uh, making um you know tapes and just barely scraping up enough money to go to a recording studio and press a real record um we were on the cusp of the new wave of british heavy metal but doing it here in new york and we didn't even know what the British heavy metal, new wave of British heavy metal was until after we released Robin Hood's, I got a copy of the first Def Leppard album. And then I realized, oh, well, you know, hey, we're part of this. And then shortly after that, I discovered Riot, you know, Swords and Tequila and Rods and things like that. And then I realized where, where we're at. But we were, don't forget, we're 16, 17 years old at this point. And we were faced with an extraordinary set of circumstances. And in fact, that uh, A&M Records was seriously interested in us. Um, and Millennium Records as well. And uh, that's an individual by the name of Jimmy Einer who ran Millennium Records. They had uh, The Gods and um, some other well-known groups that you know you would know. But um, basically, my story and the story of Frederick Bitch is inter intertwined with the record companies as well. And um, we're a very unique set of circumstances. Um, we're above and beyond a lot of the other New York metal bands as far as that's concerned. And uh, as you know, we were on the New York Metal 84 record as well. And uh, yeah, uh, there's an extensive history of the group. You know, I don't know how far you want to go into it. Oh, uh, we got as we, much as you'd like to know. Oh, uh, we got plenty of time. Well, you say being teenagers at the time, I mean, you have a lot going for you because, you know, you're young, you're aggressive, you're willing to do and try anything to make it happen. But did that hurt you? when it came to looking for major labels or having them being interested in you because you were well, so young, yeah, did I mean, you like, did you have a concept yeah, that, of what was is, involved? Yeah. Well, it was a lot of this all happened at once. I mean, yeah, you're right. And you know, what comes down is A&M, uh, an individual by the name of Hernando Courtright was the A&R executive at um, A&M at the time. And he was running the New York office. And uh, what happened was right after we released Robin Hood's, a talent agent uh, took, a copy of Robin Hood's to Hernando's office, along with 10 other groups, 10 of the local, you know, New York groups, all groups that were not really metal related or even rock, whatever they were. And um, out of all of the um, music, Hernando immediately zeroed in on us and told the talent agent, I want to hear more from these guys. Whoever these guys are, I want to know who they are. So the talent agent came back to us kind of scratching his head because he didn't think that they were, were going to think much of us. And we were the one that, that, that he picked. And he said, I got some great news. Hernando wants to hear more stuff. Um, so we immediately then, in haste, tried to write new music. And uh, Henry joined the band at that point. Um, at that point, originally it was just Joe Mellaby, Al Michelle, and myself as a three-piece. And I wrote all the music. And then Henry Matthews, who a, was a friend of ours and a local uh, uh, ace guitar player the way Joe was, decided to come and join the band to play bass because we needed a bass player at that point because I wanted to just concentrate on becoming the front man. And we realized we needed to formulate a, a legitimate act, a performing act. We, uh, at that point, we, um, we uh, tried to 
hastily write some new songs, which was Jack the Ripper, Teenage Rebels, and Liar. And we got back into a studio. Uh, A&M wanted to see a video of us. We had to, you know, make a video for, uh, you know, for, for them. Uh, and the other issue is that uh, Hernando was having problems with his West Coast office and the fact that the California office wanted to sign Y&T. So he was kind of tossed between fighting with the L.A. office, whether he was going to sign us or, or, the, or the California office was going to overrule him and, and sign Y&T. And ultimately, Herb Albert decided that uh, it was best to go with Y&T. Yeah, they were more established than we were. And, 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 you know, and years later, I actually met Hernando, you know, through the record business. So, you know, as, as um, I'm a, I was an executive for many years and I, I got to speak face to face with him about all this stuff years later. So, you know, but that's basically what the, you know, as far as, you know, as 16 year old kids having major record companies interested in you right out of the box. Yeah, it was a tremendous pressure on us. Um, it created a, an elongated period of writer's block in me. I was, I was almost paralyzed. I was so petrified that some record record company wanted to sign me on my first attempt. And, um, and meanwhile, we were going to Twisted Sister shows every night. And we felt that they should be getting a record contract too, maybe even before us. But, uh, and I shared that information with JJ French one time at Hammerheads and, uh, he was absolutely horrified when I showed him the letters from Hernando. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, we were, you know, so, so, so but, you know, and, and consequently, uh, the years, about a year process with A&M and uh, what ultimately happened was um, they passed on us. They had to. And then simultaneously, Millennium, Jimmy Einer got interested in us. And uh, Jimmy had produced um, a couple of Kiss songs. And um, obviously, I got, we got to mention the gods were on Millennium. And he had also worked with the Raspberries and some other well-known pop acts and things like that. And he was interested in us. The problem with Millennium is they got sucked into the Casablanca bankruptcy around that time. And the, the original band with Joe Al, Henry and myself, kind of split in two after that because of just the sheer disappointment of it all. You know, and, and uh, you got to, like I said... 16, 17 year old kids with that type of pressure on us. And I'm not going to go into the other issues, money and, and everything else that, that was in on it. We just, it just split the group apart. And that's how Mach 1, as you want to call it, kind of separated yeah. Mach 2, the band you're, you're familiar with that played the clubs, came from that. But, but it sounds when you you know when you listen to you talk, it sounds like even for such a young age, you kind of had a grasp on like what you had to do and where you had to go with it. Maybe you didn't know all the yeah. the, the fine parts or anything else. But it sounds like you know like you're going to write these kind of songs now, and it does probably have to wear wear you down because you're trying so hard to make it happen, and then you kind of get that yeah. rejection oh. notice, and you don't know what to do with yourself. It's got to be really hard, yeah. especially when you're a kid. Oh, it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. And I knew even back then in the recording sessions for Jack the Ripper, Teenage Rebels, and Liar, that this was maybe not going to work because I knew, and, and the guys, I didn't share that information with the guys. You know, they, they looked at it differently. I, I'm very critical of myself, and, and I knew that that material was not as good as Robin Hood's and You're No Loser. And then actually now listening to it, you know, when you play the stuff on your station, I listen to it from time to time. It sounds pretty good on the radio, but but I know as a record company executive, did not show growth. In other words, what a record company executive looks for in a band is growth. And they wanted to see the growth from Robin Hood to the next step. And there was a track called School Days that never got recorded that we used to rehearse. And we probably should have went with that rather than those other three songs. And that would have shown growth. And it, it just, it, it, that's what you look for in a band. You want to see growth. And it just, 
I can imagine why the West Coast office passed on it. And maybe with Millennium, things would have worked out. I mean, you know, years later, um, I worked with Jimmy, Jimmy Einer's brother, Donnie Einer, when I worked at Arista, and I, and, I, and I didn't get to speak to Jimmy about it. And Jimmy said, well, you know, basically he goes, yeah, I was interested, and, you know, I had too many other pots burning at the time. I couldn't get back to it, but maybe something would have worked. So I, I kind of know what would have happened. But you can't go back in life and repair things. You know that that's just how it is, yeah. and, and that's and unfortunately in the business sometimes, and, and I've been involved in it for many many years. There are just circumstances that, that that come into play. Why groups got signed, why they didn't get signed, why groups that did get signed made it, and why groups that did get signed didn't make it. And there, there, there's a whole litany of problems that interfere with that process. And um, that's, you know, I'll just give you the Reader's Digest version of it. That's really what it is, you know? Yeah. Well, like it says, it fell apart, and then sort of Mach 2 of the lineup comes about, and you're out there playing live. Before that, the second lineup of the bank came about, did you kind of think it was the beginning of the end at that time, or did you feel that this was going to be a new start, and we were going to try again and take it from this point and try to make it happen I, again? What I was worried about back then, you know, what happened was um, we were discovered by Bob Muldowney, um, Kick-Ass Monthly, and Bob discovered Metallica. Yeah. Bob, 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 Bob only managed one band, Frigid Ditch, no one else. He didn't want to manage it, and he could have managed whoever he wanted to manage. Um, he, he saw us at a, at a club one night and instantly came up to me right after the show and grabbed me by the uh, my denim vest and said, I got to talk to you. So uh, we sat down, and, we, and he says, I can really help you because I haven't seen anything like this in New York because this is uh, what I've been looking for. And we became friends as well as being a manager. I mean, we became, he was my dear friend. I get kind of emotional when I speak about Bob because he, he, he was such a, such a influence and um, person that really never got the credit that he rightfully deserved. But um, what happened was with Mach 2 was the, um, the group was built for damage. In other words, where, where, where the first group was really more of a recording studio entity. In other words, we were just experimenting in, in a recording studio and I just happened to be writing songs that, well, here we are 35 years later, still talking about them. But, but, but frankly, the Mach, Mach 2 is different. We wanted to go and play in the club scene. We, you know, Twisted had left, they went to England, and we felt this was a great spot to go in and to try to fill some of their footsteps. We knew we couldn't fill all their footsteps, but we could definitely take advantage of it. And the, uh, the local clubs needed new acts. Uh, the, uh, the club owners from Cheers liked us, and uh, Fingers from WBAB Metal Shop got involved with us, and Bob got involved with us, and we just hit the club scene, and it exploded. And basically, what it comes down to with Mach 2 was I knew in my heart and in my good sense was telling me that we might be a few ticks too late because of once I saw Metallica, I said, well, this is going to be kind of hard to catch. I knew we were good. I knew we were real good, but I wasn't sure how fast we were going to get there because we were still growing. And don't forget, my brother Mike was in the band at that point. Mike at that point was yeah. only 17. Chris, Chris Meyer was only 17. These guys weren't even allowed in the clubs. <laughs> you know? so, so, True. so we, were, we, were really, we were walking in between raindrops with that. They had, they, you know, I've known Chris Meyer since he's 10 years old and he got his first drum set. So, you know, you know, so and so they were the perfect guys to join Henry and I because there was no infighting in the group at that point. There was no problem. You know, I didn't fight with Mike and, and you know, and, 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 and Chris at that point pretty much went along with anything because, you know, they were younger guys. They looked up to Henry and I. And we pretty much 
ran the show, and, and it was fine, and, and it all worked good, and, and the thing exploded. So, you know, we had all these issues that we had to work around, and then Metallica happened. And as it exploded, I, I just wasn't sure if we were going to get there in time. That, that, was, my, that was my biggest fear, we just maybe not be able to get there in time, you know, it, it, to be blatant with you. That, that was a fear that I had. And yeah. I, I thought we might be able to get there. And I, I knew the scene was exploding. I knew the labels. Were, and we were getting offers. Don't get me wrong. We had an offer for Metal Blade, and we could have signed that. But simultaneously at that time, simultaneously, I landed the job at Combat. And then once I got onto the inside of the business, well, then all of a sudden my world changed drastically and very quickly. I started to understand all the questions that I had that I could never get answered all of a sudden were at my fingertips reach. I was immediately put in touch with the, the company's lawyers. I was working directly with the law firm and understanding specifically how the business works. And I realized at that point that this is something that's, that, that, we may not, I may not be able to proceed with because of the conflict of interest too, which was all of a sudden I was in charge of a lot of these acts and, and, label, and had a daily rapport with all the labels. You know, Megaforce, I was on the phone with Johnny constantly. I was on the phone with the people from Roadrunner, on the phone with Metal Blade, with Brian, you name it. And, and how could I possibly be in Frigid Bitch at the same time, uh, you know, and, 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 and making executive decisions on behalf of how important and how combat was going to inter interact with these companies. So it's, you know, that's really what happened. Well, like you say, you were still in Frigid Bitch when, when the beginning of the combat thing started coming about. Did you think at that time that you could use, like, the, you know, use to get into, getting into comic user to the advantage of the band by maybe trying to get the band on the combat label? Or was it just like at that point I, I didn't, I didn't something have, that wasn't even considered? Mike, I, I think you don't understand the, the gravity of this. I didn't even have to try. I could have went down the hallway and had a, had a check cut for us. That wasn't even a question. I could have done whatever I wanted to do. I had executive power. I, I could have done anything I wanted to do. I could have put out a frigid bitch record. I, I could have went on tour if I wanted to. That, that, that was not an issue. I could, you know, we it wasn't, it had nothing to do with that. It was just, it was a legal issue and that it was a conflict of interest with what I was doing there and being yeah. in something like that at the same time. Uh, I could have left the company and signed myself and left, but what happened was the, I was like a vice president and the president was a guy by the name of Steve Sinclair. Now Steve owned, later on, he owned Mechanic Records. He put out Trickster, Voivod, Bang Pango. Yeah. He's a legend. And Steve was basically like my mentor. And um, he handpicked me out of maybe 20 different people that he interviewed for that position, um, all major label guys. He didn't trust one of them, and he picked me. And he, you know, one night we're out to out to dinner at the local pizza place, and he, he you know, we took, he asked me about it. He says, "What do you want to do with Frigid?" And I started saying, "Well, we want to do this. We're playing Lamar. We're going to do this, do that." And he just said, "Look, Joe," he goes, "I'm not going to tell you what to do. You can do whatever you want. Anything you want to do, we're 100% behind you." He said, "But think about." what are you going to be doing 30 years from now? He actually said that to me. He said, what are you going to be doing 30 years from now? Are you still going to be singing, you frigid bitch? Or would you want, want to make your entire career as a record company executive? He goes, because you have the makings of doing that and you have a, a keen a sense of, of how the business works. People like you and you, you know how to make things happen. And that's a rare, rare trait in a record executive. You have it. And, you know, I thought about it and it was agonizing. Absolutely agonizing because Frigid was something that, you know, 
I did this when I was 16 years old and into my 20s, and I, I didn't think of anything else. And um, I had to make a hard decision to, to, I guess, put the band on hiatus. No, we didn't break up. It wasn't like a fight or anything like that. I, I went and reasoned with the guys, and I told them what the situation was. And they, um, they, you know, they, they accepted it. And they went on to other things. You know, Matt, um, Mike and Chris started uh, their band called Damaged. They, they, they continued on. Yeah. Henry had his own bands. He opened up for Anvil. Um, Mike and Chris toured with the Cro-Mags and, and Wendy Williams. And I helped anyone in any way I could. I, they had a, uh, a record offer from um, uh, Chris Williamson from Rock Hotel. I, uh, you know, I, 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 I nixed that contract. I didn't like the contract for them. And, and, but I, was, I had an open door for anything. If any of those guys needed anything, I was there for them. So it, it wasn't an issue with that. It was just at the same time, the, the, the scene had exploded. And after that point, Master of Puppets had been released by Metallica, and it was just a glut of garage bands. Everyone who had a you know could pick up a, a, a guitar was sending in demo tapes, and it was just a, the bands were getting signed left and right, and it was an absolute avalanche of the movement. And we were at the cusp of the movement, but we just weren't able to take advantage of it. And I guess that's the fair way to, to, to describe exactly what happened. Yeah. Well, you know, I completely, I mean, now as an adult myself, I completely understand the move you made back, back then. Uh, but for a young yeah. man, you know, and, and, you know, in a band at a time when metal was exploding and getting bigger and bigger, and most people were just willing to jump in that van, travel around and, and do whatever it's, you know, it would take to make it, that, that had to have been, like you said, a gut-wrenching decision to make, especially since you consider this yeah. to be like your baby. Uh, but I guess yeah. it had to have been some sort of like, like maybe your heart just wasn't in it either at that time, you know, and then that offer from combat kind of just convinced you also, I would imagine, hey, you know what? This is a one in a million um, chance, but, you know, you seem like the that only, chance was there back then at least. It was a chance, but, you know, the issue is like, you know, like, like I spoke to Sinclair, you know, about this back then. I basically made a deal with him. I said, look, I go, I'll tell you what, if we get, if we get a major offer, you know, from Atlantic or someone like that, we'll, I'm going to consider that. I go, other than that, I won't sign with any other independent. And he said, fine. He goes, let's see what happens. And basically, as time went on, we just didn't pursue it. And I, I couldn't pursue it. That was the only thing, too. My job took a tremendous toll on me. And it wasn't just a job. I, I didn't punch a clock. It wasn't a nine-to-five job. You have to understand, as a record guy, it's a 24-7 life. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just something that was I was constantly in clubs, constantly between Lamore, you know, Ritz, CBGBs, you name it, I was there. And it just, I couldn't devote the time to the band anymore. I had, I had too many other bands that were relying on me. I had Dave from Megadeth relying on me. I had, you know, the guys from Nuclear Assault relying on me. You name it. I mean, all these bands were, and labels, like, you know, I was still, the first two Metallica records were being pressed on my watch. I was responsible for that. And, and, and all the, the entire heavy metal movement was going for important records. And, 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 and I had, you know, several hundred releases at all times going through my hands and there were promotion people underneath me. And, and it was explo every day I walked into that place. It was like an earthquake. That's the best way I can describe it. And, yeah. you know, that, that's what was going on. You know, you know yourself, I'm sure you're a record collector and you probably spent enough money buying records. Absolutely. 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 Right. right. And most of them have my name on the back of them. So, <laughs> you know, it's just, that's so, true so, too. Right. Exactly. So it's just an odd set of circumstances. And, it's, you know, it's, it's just something like, think of, look, what if J.J. French was a vice president at Atlanta Records? What would he have done? You know, and, and, you know would he have signed himself or would he have, 
you know, had a, he would have had a commitment that he would have to. You know, it's the same thing. Not that I'm comparing myself to JJ French, but you know, it, it just in general, it's like it's just an odd set of circumstances. And I just happened to be young enough, yeah. and the group hadn't been discovered to that point yet. Well, I was on that that thin line, and I decided to go the other way. And it's it's been an incredible life that I've had because of it. Um, it's it's here I am talking to you 35 years later, and from stuff that I did in my bedroom when I was 16 years old, and, and some group that plays in front of 50,000 people in Japan just covered uh, Tyrants of a Generation. So I, I think I did something right. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Hey, you know, John, one that you're moving away from Frigid Bitch for a minute. I mean, you, like you said, you were, you were behind the scenes of all of these records and everything going on in the early days. You saw these like local garage bands just take off and explode. Yeah. I mean, not everyone, but you know, it was happening at that time. Did you realize as the time went by, 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, that the industry would be in the shape that it's in today, that things were going to change and turn around to you know, the industry we have now where, yeah. you know, record companies aren't king anymore? I'll tell you the story about, you know, it's an interesting story because I've been following this from, you know, from the beginning, you know, when, when I first got involved in it, at that point, the cassette was something that, although it had, it had been around, but the cassette was starting to really take off and the, and the, and the stores were demanding more and more cassettes to be manufactured, um, especially, and, and it also fueled the growth of heavy metal, cassettes, actually. So I saw the transition from vinyl to cassette. and you know, that was obviously an analog transition and no one got hurt with that because that was a good thing in that it was just another configuration and people buying vinyl or cassette or both. And then the compact disc happened and I was involved in that process as well, obviously. And when I saw the, the death of vinyl back then, and what happened was a lot of people don't know this. The reason why vinyl was killed prematurely was because the major companies were very, very concerned about the environmental impact in which in which vinyl, the manufacture of vinyl was creating. In other words, the EPA uh, was actually going and trying to put pressing plants out of business back then uh, because of the oh. pollutants and things that got dumped into the soils surrounding these plants. Um, even the plants that are left to this day, and there's not many of them, are in areas where they're kind of zoned for that. But there were a lot of plants that weren't zoned for that and were closed down because of it. So the, the, the industry kind of rushed towards the compact disc, not only for the profit reason, but because they were worried about, about the EPA closing down a lot of the vinyl plants. So once the, the industry got into the, into the compact disc, obviously this created tremendous profits, which was great, which was fine. But it simultaneously then killed the cassette. So it killed that configuration. It was totally reliant at that point on the compact disc. I felt at that point that another configuration should be introduced to protect the compact disc, whether it be a mini compact disc or, or what was called the DCC, digital compact cassette, which would be more along the lines of kind of like a, a flash drive type of type of configuration because people wanted yeah. to use Walkman type things. And the problem, the common problem with the compact disc is you couldn't run with the thing because it would bounce around and skip. So this, this eliminated the, the Sony Walkman market which was a real big part of the marketplace. And then you were left with a compact disc. In 1992, 93, I read an article in a financial magazine about the oncoming potential of what they call transmitting at that point, which was 
the thought back then was that music was going to be transmitted through people's cable boxes. This is pre-internet, pre-downloading and all that stuff. So I read that article and, and, and it always stuck in my head. I said, this is a problem. This is something that the industry has to address. And as the late 90s happened and, and as computers began to become more desktop friendly, I guess you want to call it, the biggest problem was that the industry did not legis did not get involved in the proper legislation in Washington DC to ensure that compact disc players were not placed in computers. They had made a deal basically to allow this to happen based on what was called the blank tape levy, so they can get royalties on blank tapes. And they, it was a trade off. And the computer industry basically screwed them. That's what happened. They got blindsided. And once that happened, once it was legally allowed to have compact disc players put into computers. Well, that was the end of it before it even happened. No one knew this. Uh, the other problem is that Philips Polygram uh, owned the patent of the compact disc recordable. And Philips divested all their holdings in the recorded music business in 1995, uh, simultaneously released blank compact disc recordables into the marketplace. Henceforth, a few, a few years after that, into the late 90s, Napster. Now you've got gasoline to the fire, and you put yeah. up, you put all that together, and you've got the disaster that we have now. Now you have the industry running back to vinyl records, which is okay, fair enough. I don't have an issue with it. I started off with vinyl, but it has a ceiling. No matter how many records you make, this is still a very antiquated, old, dirty, uh, poisonous process. And all of the, you know, it, it's just, it's absolutely ludicrous to think that this is going to fuel the business going forward. Um, I understand it's, it's experiencing growth. I'm, I'm involved. I know what's going on. Don't get me wrong. I know what's going on. But it's, it's not going to bully the business. And it's not going to bring the business back to the gatekeeper status it had. Um, you know, that's, to, I hope I answered your question. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like yeah. I think a lot of the small independent labels looking at vinyl as a little way of bringing in money and, and kind of saving them a little bit. And it's great to have that. But like it says, it's not going to be the savior of the business. That's not what's going to yeah. happen. But I, I just yeah. think the fans kind of it brings it back to the youth a little bit. It's more of a, uh, I don't like a trip down memory lane type of thing for a lot of us. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, I'm with you on all that stuff. There's just very little you can do. And there were a lot of colossal mistakes and catastrophic mistakes that were made by the Recording Industry Association. And, and, and there were things that could have been done and they didn't do it. And at the end of the day, it was just basically a bunch of guys watching out for their own ass, cutting, cutting um, staffs left and right, and uh, taking the cash assets of the company's monies and investing it into Apple and Microsoft. I mean, as ridiculous as that sound, that's what a lot of the major companies did. They, they, they took cash assets and just invested it into these companies that were killing them. It would be like making a deal with someone who's about to execute. It's absolutely yeah. retarded. And yeah. That, yeah, that's 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 what went on in the business. That is what's going on every day. So, well, John, I don't know if you saw the TV, the new TV show, the new TV series on HBO called Vinyl. I mean, I know it's absolutely. just a TV show. I don't know if you caught it, but I mean, is some of it look a little familiar? I mean, is that like kind of like really goes on behind the scenes, or at least some of it? Yeah, yeah, it's all true. I mean, except it's pretty I good. Sure. I wasn't a drug guy. <laughs> well, that but, was uh, the seventies. I, I mean, this is the seventies. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, a lot of that stuff encroached into the eighties. Um, 
um, yes, the, the show is very accurate about what goes on behind the scenes. It's, it's almost 100% accurate. I watch it myself, and I'm looking forward to watching it tonight. Uh, I, I identify yeah. a lot with it. A lot of it, it's, uh, you know, I turn to my wife, and, and I say, oh, wow, it's like I'm watching myself in a lot of this stuff. But it, it's a lot <laughs> of this stuff, it, it, yeah, I mean, I, 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 especially the A&R stuff, that's what goes on. And, and the yeah. uncertainty of uh, how a lot of these guys, it was a little different with combat and stuff like that. It was difficult to make that much of a mistake. But there, I mean, I know from the majors, and I mean, I worked for Arista as well, and and I know I know what it's like when catastrophes happen, when when something you think is going to happen, and you've you, you've you've invested all this money and time into it, and the thing fails. I, I've I've been involved in that too. So, I, and you, you'll see, I'm sure as the show progresses, they're going to touch on all that stuff when, when when there's catastrophes that happen. And also, the other interesting thing about the show, I immediately identified the the issue of polygraph. Which is which I found fascinating that they actually zeroed in on this. I mean, and that's that's a big part of, of what happened in the music business was the the entrance of Polygram, uh, the European entity, into into the American marketplace in, in the late seventies into the eighties. You know, so uh, especially with the promotion guys too, that a lot of that radio stuff did go on. And uh, yeah. although combat combat, you know, obviously we didn't have that issue. We didn't have to pay off radio guys. However. Later on, as we got involved in the relativity end of the company, which we had, like Joe Satriani. Joe Satriani is an interesting story. Uh, we had to bring in radio people and guys like that, but not, you know, not beating people up with baseball bats. But for the most part, you know, we did have to bring in guys who were so-called connected in order to get radio play for Joe. And we did a good job. You know, we got a gold record with Joe, with um, surfing with the alien. But, I mean, I think, I think that, we can have another conversation on a different uh, um, uh, interview about the combat and record companies and stuff like that. I don't want to take any more time away from Fidget, but um, sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, I could talk to you for hours about that stuff. And even if you want to talk offline, I could inform you with anything you'd like to know about it. Oh, d one day, definitely. Yeah, let's get back to Fridge. Almost 20 so, years after the band's over and done with, and it's, we don't hear about it anymore, Anger, Attitude, and Anarchy comes out. There's Lily P some demo cuts yeah. and the single on there. Was that something that you were behind or had anything to do with yeah, or did you just find out about it after it happened? That's, that's actually what triggered this whole thing. Basically what happened was, um, you know, for many years, I had all the tapes, the demo tapes stored away. You know, I, there was no reason for me to do anything with them. I had them and I had them in a safe place. Um, I got an email around 2000, I think 2001, from someone from California, a guy by the name of Jim Cranford, who owned a specialty label, OPM Records. And he had a partner by the name of John Hout, I think that was his name. And they contacted me, and, and they, they were very honest, flat out honest with me. They said, we want to put out the early Frigid Bit stuff. And I said, I was a little taken back. I said, you don't want to put out the other stuff? Because I felt they'd want to put out, you know, the demo stuff, Tyrants. And said, no, we want the early stuff. I said, really? I said, that's interesting because I'm not in touch with the guys anymore, and, and I don't know if they want to do it, but, you know, I guess we can do this, and um, and I'll get in touch with them and let them know. So I immediately, I was able to get in touch with Henry, who I'd lost touch with, and um, and uh, I said, you know, hey, check this out. You know, these guys want to put this record out. So Henry said, let's do it. You know, he was gung-ho, let, let, let's do it. At that point, Henry was in Florida. He was in Florida at that point, and he owned a rehearsal studio. Um, frequented by many, you know, well-known musicians. I, I think he's he's uh, has many uh, connections to like um, uh, Nico McBreen from Iron Maiden. I think is uh, one of one of his clients, and 
I think uh, Rory Gallagher came, came there and some other, um, you know, well-known people used to come to the studio. But uh, basically what happened was we decided to put out the early stuff. However, the master tapes that we had were old and they were oxidized over the years and the sound had disappeared on them. So we had to send them to Ampex to get processed with a process called tape baking to resurrect the sound off the tapes. So we did that. And then we compiled Anger, Attitude, Anarchy and released it as a 10-inch through OPM Records. And it got distributed worldwide through like collector's markets and things like that. And that kind of started like this resurrection of the group. And I remember back then, like after it got released, you know, Henry asked me, what do you think is going to happen with all this stuff? And I said, Hen, as this thing goes forward, years and years go, will go by all this stuff is going to be discovered. Some group, one of these days, is going to cover one of these songs, and you're going to see what happens. And he, he didn't believe it. I think he thought I was nuts. But, but I knew this. I knew it from the business. I know how, how things go in cycles. And anyway, Anger, Attitude, Anarchy was the you know, release in 2001, and he sold out. The, um, you know, the pressing was sold out, and then things started to grow from there. I was then contacted by um, Nicholas Johansson, from a label called Stormbringer from Sweden. Um, he wanted, then he wanted to put out the later stuff, which didn't surprise me at all. That record, you know, Tyrant, which is, ty you know, ty the Tyrant's record, took me, yeah. oh, I think, seven, eight, I, I dragged my feet on it. It took about seven, eight years to finally come out. The wow. reason why it took, it took so long is because I wanted Bob Muldowney to write the liner notes. And it was something that Bob was ill at the time, and it was something that I, I, I didn't want to pressure him to do. I just wanted him to do it. And he, he had his reservations. And it was something that, like, even with all the power that I had invested in me, you know, from combat and my days as a record executive, when it came to Bob Muldowney, I didn't do anything without him, you know, giving me the blessing to go. He, I, I was so loyal to him in that way. And basically, after Bob died, I decided that it was time to, to put the whole tyrants thing together. And, and I spent, it took me some time because I'm busy, you know, to do this. And I know Nicholas, he, he was really, really good. And he, he, he was patient and I may have frustrated him in the process of how long this thing took to be, to, to be put together. But we finally did get it together. 2011, we did go back to a studio. We, um, we got everything mastered correctly. And we, we tried to do the best that we could do with the old tapes that we had. And don't forget this stuff is coming off of, cassette tapes that from a soundboard show from Cheers back in 1983, I think. Uh, it was a pre, you know, a, a um, sound check session that we did the, the original demos from. And then we took We Rule the Night and some of the other tapes that we had and we, we compiled um, Tyrants of a Generation and we released it. And then I knew once that was released that something would come of it at some, I knew that something would come of it at some point. And then I got contacted by Years later, I got contacted by a guy by the name of, name of Lino Rica from a Chips, Chips and Beer magazine. And it was the first interview I had done in a long time. I had done another interview with Snake Pit with the Ramadier, I believe his name is. Yeah. And, yep. uh, and yeah, he's a good guy. And yeah, he had done a combat interview with me. I've done a lot of his interviews, some other magazine, Italian, international magazine. Um, but Lino Rica really was the one who kind of um, put the impetus that there should be life after death on this thing, that it should really continue. He was, he was really good. And he, um, 
he came to my house. He interviewed me, did an extensive interview. He gave us a centerfold of, of, of chips and beer issue with all the New York bands were in there, including Twisted Sister, uh, you know, uh, Dictators, uh, Ross the Boss, you know, Manowar, all this stuff was in there. And we were, we were focused on. And um, I was able to do an extensive interview with him. To you know, he, he asked me all the questions he wanted to ask me, and, and we became friends as well. And uh, then shortly after that, Mike Keller from Sacrificial Blood came forward. He told me he wanted to cover We Rule the Night on his record. And then he set up a Facebook page, and I gave him a blessing. And then Enforcer happened after that. So here we are. So, you know, and I, and I met with Olaf from Enforcer um, at the Gramercy Theater. Uh, in January, uh, when the Enforcer record was released, I got in contact with the people at Nuclear Blast, uh, my old friend Monty Connor, who, who used to work at Combat as well. And um, yeah. Monty was good enough. Monty was good enough to uh, to give me whatever I needed. I didn't have to bend his arm. So, <laughs> so uh, and, 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 you know, he's, he's a good guy. So he, he was able to hook me up with the publishing people. That's another thing too. We own all the publishing rights and all this stuff. And all this stuff, I may add. All of it has been unpublished till this day. It has never been formally published, never been formally released. And now it's being distributed through Universal and Sony. You know, also, Tyrants of a Generation is the number one enforcer download, four months counting on iTunes. I don't know what that constitutes yet. I haven't gotten the royalty statement yet. I don't know what it is, but, but, but we'll find out. But, but regardless, it's just it's really humbling and I do have some bragging rights because I could tell my friend Henry I told you so. But <laughs> other than that, <laughs> but other than that, I've I've known about this for quite some time, and uh, you know, I kind of saw the handwriting on the wall when the people from OPM got in touch with me in 2001. I, I knew something was going on, and um, that's basically about it. You know, as, as far as the future goes, you know, I mean, you know, there's. The first thing when I, when I met Olaf from Enforcer, Enforcer, the first thing he said to me, which I was really surprised, was um, he says, would you guys play the Keep the True Festival in Germany? And I, I looked at him like he was nuts. I said, hey, Olaf, you know, that's, um, that's a tall order there. You know, we, we, no, we no longer have an active band. We don't have an infrastructure for that type of thing. He's like, no, 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 I could handle that for you, whatever you need. I said, no, no. I go, you don't understand. There's a lot that goes into something like that. And he, he knew, you know, they yeah. play the Keep the True Festival. I mean, I mean, theoretically, Mike, if whatever I wanted to do, I could do. I can make two phone calls and get whatever I want. There's a lot that goes into that type of thing. But it's nice to talk about and think about, whatever. But And we talked about the possibility of re-recording some of the stuff. And, and I don't right now, I, I, we don't know yet. It's, it's all too kind of new, and it's, it's nice that people are discovering this stuff. And that's really all I can say about it at this point. It's... Um, and, and I hope you play more of it on your radio show. That's all I can say. Like we, any, we play Frigid Bitch. We play frigid bitch all the time on this show, and Great. I'm glad that you know at least the, uh, at least there might be an opportunity somewhere in the future for something to happen. That's good enough for me. As long as you never say never, uh, I, I can well, live you know with what? that. Oh, you know, it'd be great. I'm gonna um, I brought Mike's band Damaged. They had a full blown demo that um was never released. I'm gonna get you a copy of the CD so you have it for your own personal. Um, and you've never heard this stuff. Uh, you know, so you, and it was uh, well, there was a track called "State of the Union" that was just great, and I'll send it over to you so you have it, and maybe you want to play it one of these days too. So that that'd be great. I would absolutely love that, Joe. I'm gonna have to cut you loose, man. I could talk to you forever. Sure. We're gonna do this again one day because yeah. I got another yeah, guest in the wings. But want, yeah, any, yeah, anytime you want me on the show, I'll, I'll come back on. You want to talk record business stuff or whatever? I'm after you. Okay. 
We'll talk everything. <laughs> I'm going to get us some frigid bitch right now, Joe. Take care, pal. All right, have a great weekend. You take care. Mr. Joe Lennon from Frigid Bitch. Let's play a song. Here you go. Jack the Ripper.
All right, there you go. Power Lord with Silent Terror. T, you still on the line with me? I'm here, baby. All right, okay, all right. Well, our buddy Iman just got me in a message, and you know what? He was talking, he was asking if I heard about Tyrant, and yes, I, I did. I was laughing about that myself. You know, there's a band Tyrant from California. Uh, Greg May is a, is a really nice guy, but I think they take the Tyrant thing a little too seriously sometimes. Like, they're the only, so like what you guys went through with the Tempest, you know, with the name and everything before Pete Rotts. Uh. That thing. Yeah. So uh yeah. Bart Gabriel, uh well-known guy in the in the business over in Germany, he wrote something down like the tyrants are coming, if I remember on his webpage, because he's putting out uh he's putting out like a like a like a split album compilation type of thing. I don't remember the name of it, Tyrants of Metal or Tyrants of something, whatever it was called, uh Tyrants wow. in Exile. Uh maybe he might remembers the name of it, but uh he was putting something out like that. It's gonna feature like you know, like one or two bands on each record. I guess like a split thing, and yeah. the band Tyrant thought that they were—he was referring to him working with them. And so they posted like, you know, keep your eye out. You know, uh, we're going to be working with Bob Gabriel and all. It was like one of those really big communication uh, things, which really should uh, uh, Tyrants of Steel, Iman said. Uh, but the thing is, like, you know, if you're going to be working with somebody, you know, there should have been a conversation that took place before you were for, you know, anything. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? You just thought, like, that's like me writing down, like, you know, Metallica, you know, and then Metallica, you know what? We're working with the big cheese from Heavy Metal Mayhem. <laughs> I just mentioned your name, and it's all he did. And all yeah. of a sudden, it was like well, the war of the the war of the worlds erupted. Uh, Tyrant was ripping him apart, and and the funny thing is, like he never did anything. He never he said nothing. He never word. did anything. He just used he the just word said, you know, Tyrant. Tyrants are coming. I mean, you know, then other people jumped in on it, you know, and it went back and forth for a while. And you know, Bart Gabriel responded. You know, he wasn't nasty. You know, but things don't translate so well sometimes. Like from, you know, with English. You know, when you come from another country. But everybody that oh, read it yeah. who knows and realizes he was just saying, hey, you know, I think, you, you know, you're taking us a little too far. <laughs> it's like crazy. But I'm like, what did they, what did the band even get that idea from by him saying that? I mean, how about like send him a, a message? You know, hey, Bob, are you referring to like working with us and we don't know about it yet or <laughs> something like that? I mean, even yeah, when yeah, I had yeah. them with me here in New York where they played, I took them like for a little uh, New York City tour. They were ripping mm -hmm. apart uh, uh, the tyrant from Jack Panza for using the name the tyrant. I'm like, Okay, but I'm like, yeah, it's just Harry the Tyrant Conklin. I mean, that was his stage name, the Tyrant. I mean, whether you had the name of the band before then, I don't want to say nothing because they're friends of ours, uh, uh, Tyrant, but I'm just saying. I mean, people, I mean, you went through this with the Tempest name. You know what the bullshit is and how it goes with that crap. Yeah. Other bands yeah. have gone through this. I mean, you know, they've had to add UK, USA, you know, to the name or SA or, or whatever it was. But, I mean, just, I even, I'm I like. I not even mind doing that. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm like, th this is a fight about nonsense. And the last person you want to like get into a war of words with is a guy like Bart Gabriel, who really does a lot and helps a lot of these classic 80s bands, you know, with his record label, management, yeah. the festivals he's a part of. And then, you know, one breath, the, the band's saying, hey, look, we're looking to get signed, we're looking for help. And then you're bad-mouthing a guy that probably could have did it and would have done it <laughs> if you would have actually, like, you know, approached him, had a conversation with him. But... Some right, funny right. shit going on, man. I'm like, holy crap. I'm like, what the hell is that all about? Wild uh, shit in this amazing, world, huh? Amazing, right? Amazing. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't get it. And the other thing I was reading about this week was uh, Ann Bolin, uh, one of my favorites, uh, who uh, stood me up twice for an interview, so I could really care less about her personally. She was upset that, I guess, somebody put out a detente record 
Uh, and after Dawn Crosby died, she kind of filled in for a while. But I think it was much later. Uh, they did some rehearsals. I guess she was saying they did some recordings of some songs uh, before Tina Teal stepped in for the, the second record, uh, the Decline record. And they released, I guess, those ambulance songs. She goes, I had nothing to do with this. I contributed. I wasn't a part of it. And I'm reading that. I'm like, you know, I remember interviewing a lot of bands over the years who were signed to her new Renaissance label record who kind of all said the same thing about her and the way they she treated, you know, those bands on the label. So I kind of find it funny that, like, it's reversed right now on her. But I don't want to say too much because she is a lawyer and we don't want to get sued here. But uh, <laughs> I just yeah, found that a little... A little amusing over there. And let's be honest, is it really that great of an interest in detente anymore? I'm not sure she passed away as anybody cared about the band, and they only really had the one record out. I mean, the second they did have two records out, one a couple of years ago, uh, but it really wasn't a good record. You know, uh, it didn't have anything to do with the earlier sounding albums. So, eh, I guess K Sera Sera, right? I that you hit around the head, okay, sera, sera. I hate French, hey, we... and I hate French, but uh, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I know that. Well, hey, listen, this French is March. The French metal... fries. <laughs> That's about the only good thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to say French. Well, I got to put French women in there also. You know, uh, I, I got to yeah. stick them in there. But uh, yeah. this is March. Yeah, the metal matinee the is. Oh, I can do without. Yes. Yes, uh, the I want the metal matinee is finally coming to an end this month. We're down to the last oh, wow. three episodes, and we're going to wrap it up. Eight years, four hundred episodes. Wow. Wow. We're closing it at the end of this month because I'm just shit out of ideas, and I can't think of anything else to, to come up with. You know, four hundred theme shows was a lot, but we're still going to do like holiday specials, like Halloween and Christmas, because I enjoy doing those shows. But this yeah, week, yeah, it's instruments fun. of pain. It's all about those painful instruments in the world that hurt when you get killed by them. So tune in, and then I think we get one or two more shows after that, and we wrap it up. Next Sunday night, I'm trying to remember who we have on the show. Um, I think Mike from the band Panther, the band that featured Jeff Scott Soto on vocals, I reached out to him, and Venom is on the show, and we do have one other band. I'd be damned if I can remember who the hell it is. Uh, but right after that, we got Uli John Roth, Andy Timmons, John West, uh, uh, Mike Howard, Kurt Vanderhoff from Metal Church around the week after. Ooh, I reached out cool. to Tony Scaglione from Whiplash, who was back in the band on drums. Tony also played drums for Slayer when Dave Lombardo left the first time, and a lot of great hardcore bands like Cause for Alarm and MOD. So we got a great April coming up, a busy, busy April coming up. So uh, stick around and uh, enjoy the guest. Enjoy the show, man. Enjoy the That's show. all we can do. Best. All right, let's get on one more tune before. Uh, that's right. Uh, before Jason uh, Ashcraft calls up from uh, Hillian Prime and Dire Peril, I played his other band, Dire Peril, on the show two weeks ago when I did a Blois the Cult uh, cover show. They do an absolutely kick ass cover of Godzilla. We opened up the show with it. He's got a new band called Hillian Prime right now, and we'll talk to him all about that. But right now, let's do Kim Six has Bang Your Head.
All right, Defender giving us Ghost Rider. You know, T, I thought Jason Ashcraft was supposed to call in at 7.30. It's about 22, 8 already. Maybe it was 7.45 because yeah. we, we did have other guests that were supposed to be on in between that I kind of had to cancel this week because we had a lot going on here at home. Yeah. So maybe I did tell him 7.45. I don't remember. We'll wait another five or ten minutes to see if he calls in. If not, I think we'll play one more song and then wrap up today's show a little early because I have some things to do. Uh, but it looks like uh, uh, Steve Grimmage, Grim Reaper, is coming to Brooklyn uh, this Friday night, the 18th, uh, at the oh. St. Vitus Bar. Our friends in October 31st opening up with a few other bands. So uh, if you're a Grim Reaper fan, that should be pretty good. Steve still sounds great when he sings those classic songs. He hasn't lost anything in his voice. And, uh, and uh, I just saw, a, uh, I think a week ago, we talked about Jag Panza uh, coming to New York. They're playing at the St. Vitus Bar, I believe, June 10th. Uh, it's a Saturday night. That's going to be another great show. I don't recall ever seeing the band live in New York. Somebody said they were here. I know it never happened in the 80s. And uh, there were a lot of shows I missed in the 90s. They might have. I, I, I don't remember because I really didn't go to a lot of shows in the 90s. I just got married, had kids. I didn't get out really much uh, to see a lot of shows. Uh, but I know it wasn't yeah. in the 80s because they kind of broke up throughout the entire heyday of heavy metal. They got back together afterwards. Uh, but I am okay. definitely going to go there to see Jack Pans. I am not going to miss that show uh, for anything. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. And Metal Church are playing at BB Kings, I think, uh, the week after next they're playing. I have to. I, so I was actually doing an interview with uh, Max Portnoy, Mike Portnoy's son. Uh, he's got a band called Next to None going on right now. The young kid plays oh. the drums like his father. So to get to, so to entice like radio people to interview this young band, you know, Mike Portnoy is available to sit down to all the interviews with his son. So I figured, you know what? I said, if I could talk to Mike Portnoy and ask him some annoying questions, I says, you know, we'll do the interview. So I, I agreed to it. But you know, when you open up that door and you agree to that, you always get hammered for like a whole bunch of other interviews you can't do or just don't want to do. And I got sucked into like a live interview with the band. I really don't want to interview live at a date and time. I don't want to go, but I have no choice now. <laughs> so I'm like, Dan, you know, you make a deal with the devil. <laughs> Sometimes you got to do shit. Yeah, you got to take the horns. Yeah, I know. I'm taking them on this one. Normally I wouldn't care, uh, but there's just so much going on lately. And I got to be honest with you. We've done so many. I think we've done more interviews in the, the two and a half months we were into it in 2016 than we did the first six months of all of last year. I mean, it's just like one after yeah, the other. Yeah. And it, it's great to have all these guests on here. But after a while, you just run out of things to talk about and say, especially when there's like four of them in a row. It's impossible to think of enough questions that you don't repeat yourself with four interviews and then you get tired and you're like, ah, you know, it wasn't even a good one, but I had to do it. And that's not fun either. So we got to get back to like one a week, even two. <laughs> that, that, that would be great. Yeah. That would be nice well, for you. Definitely. <laughs> yes. Yeah, something we'll, we'll have to work on. For, well, it's not going to happen the next month because we're overloaded again. But how can I turn that Uli John Watt, even though I should, because it stood me up three times in the last two weeks on interviews. Okay. He's supposed to call it. And then he forgot that he was at the airport, that he was in Japan, and it was always something. So I know it didn't happen. But uh, I keep saying yes because it's Uli John Roth. Come on, you have to. Uh, that record, that record is so good. The new one with the score. Well, he's got something new coming out, but the Scorpions. The oh yeah, he, 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 that is so yeah, good, yeah. Man. I got it on my yeah. MP3 player constantly. Yeah, I know. Uh, it is a good record. Same thing with uh, Tim Baker. What do you think of the... Oh, I'm sorry. Which one? No, go ahead. What do you think of the, the Last in Line record? Eh, I mean, you know, 
It's not bad. It's definitely not like 80s heavy metal or classic power metal. It's a lot more yeah. of the newer stuff that's been going on. But I can see them kind of wanting to move away from it. You know what it is? In the beginning, they were talking about how they were going to like, you know, this would have sounded like stuff that would have been on the next Dio record, you know, if this lineup was still together. If that was the case, I think either Ronnie would come back from the grave to smack one of them or he was going in a whole new direction because it definitely doesn't sound like anything Dio, the band Dio, would have done. In the mid '80s, yeah. not not in my opinion, yeah. but it's it's not bad it's for what like it is. It. You know, it's not bad for what it is, like you said. And his his playing is very uh, very spirited. His guitar playing. And, yeah, well, uh, if like being in Def Leppard, that could kill your soul. I don't know if uh, <laughs> I don't know if uh, they're going to continue now that uh, Bane is passed. You know. No, they're not. They're not right. Yeah, that's what. No, I, I spoke to. I spoke with Vinnie Apice uh, last week uh, when we had to reschedule the interview, and uh, Vivian Campbell's already said in multiple interviews that he can't see this being a live band without Jimmy Payne. Maybe you know they might want to do some studio work where he would play guitar if they had new music, but then it's not really yeah. a band; it's just a studio project. And uh, yeah. Yeah. but I don't think it's going to continue as is. And that's why they're really not pushing the promotion or the promoting of it. I guess they have to do so much for the record label. Uh, they're not really like right. doing as much as they should. I remember, like they said, you know, do you want to interview, you know, last in line, the PR person? I was like, yeah, absolutely. This is putting me with Vivian Campbell. Like, well, we have Vinnie Appice. <laughs> like, you know, Vivian Campbell's only doing like a select few. And it's like Eddie right. Trunk or like, you know, radio stations have cold numbers in front of the letters that don't say BTR. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I knew I didn't, I, I knew I didn't stand a chance in hell of getting that one, but I figured I have to try, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he's sort of like, Mike, you know, uh, he goes, I'll put you in, but I don't know if it's going to happen. I go, hey, listen, I had to go for it. I mean, you know, <laughs> you never know. You got to try. Definitely. Not definitely. that I don't want to talk to Vinny Apathy. Vinny's been on the show like three or four times over, over the last uh, eight years. Definitely. I've been on here quite a bit. And uh, I wouldn't want to talk to Andrew Freeman either. He's involved in a lot of stuff. He's in, he does the Raiding the Rock Vault over in Las Vegas at the Hilton over there with Paul Shortino and uh, Tracy Guns and all those guys out there. And, uh, so I wouldn't mind talking to him either, but we'll make it happen. I had to reschedule the Vinnie Apathy one because everything that went on this week here at the house. And uh, but we'll get him back on again here real soon. Involved with so many other bands and projects that uh, he'll be promoting one of them again real soon. But we got a busy month anyway, so that's all that matters. Keep him busy. I don't know, T. Should we play another tune or yeah, let's play another song while we wait. And if he doesn't call in after the song, we'll play one more and we'll wrap it up here today. Uh, you know, I can never pronounce the name of this band. Is it Haikus? Haikus? H Y K S O S. They've been around since the 80s, and it's been 30 years since I haven't been able to pronounce the name of the band the right way. But let's do No Escape. <laughs>
All right, Iron Angel Legions of Evil. We're almost out of time, T. I guess our next guest didn't call in, so I guess it's time to bust open that book. Uh, we'll we'll do it next week because uh, we're kind of running out of time here today. It will be the first one of the year. Well, it'll be the first musician of the year. Uh, we're going to put a listener in there pretty soon also if Chiron doesn't come back. And uh, he hasn't been feeling well lately, so he's probably all dumped up on meds. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think this is going to be our first, it's going to be our first band of the year, but we'll, uh, we'll induct them next week. Cause, uh, I want to wrap it up here today and, uh, take care of some stuff. Okay, I have brother. Uh, but, but it was great having you back in the fold and, uh, we'll have to keep thank this going you, for the rest of the year. All right. So let's, uh, let's close out here today. First, let's thank Joe Lennon from Frigid Bitch. It was great talking with him. And if I knew we were going to get stood up by our second guest, I would have kept Joe on twice as long because there was a lot to talk about with him. A fascinating yeah, a guy. Lot, right. Um, I know that always happens. You know, uh, you have somebody great that wants to talk and has a whole bunch of stories to tell. Yeah, I mean, we did speak for almost an hour, so that was pretty good, but could have kept them oh, on yeah. longer. But it looks like somebody screwed us here, but that's life, right? Okay, sera, sera. All right, let's close it out here tonight with some Black Sabbath. Uh, I want to send this out to my daughter. This is from the Born Again record. It's the title track, Born Again. Take care, everybody. I'll see you next week. Take care, Tay. All right, good night. Good night, everybody.
Love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get a hundred dollars back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting one hundred dollars back and one hundred percent accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 